Good morning. We on back there? We loud enough? Guys, if you would open your Bibles up this morning to Exodus chapter 15. <clears throat> Let me ask you this question as you turn to this passage. What's the, uh, the likelihood that in an audience gathered on a Sunday morning, an audience this size, there are some people here who feel controlled or overwhelmed by some failure in your life. There's an issue where you have, you have failed at something that's significant, something that was significant, something that was in your life or something that's still in your life, and you are living pretty affected by that on a regular basis? Or what's the likelihood that in an audience like this, there are folks here who are covering up or are hiding an area of ongoing sin in your life? And you might come into a meeting like this. You may have come to many, many, many meetings like this where this issue just travels with you and you, you kind of hope it doesn't get brought up. You kind of hope the message doesn't land on it real hard. And look, look I, I know this is Sunday morning. You know, Sunday morning for me might need be a little bit unique and then it's not the same sort of a feel that it is for you. Obviously, I'm going to preach on Sunday morning. I'm going to study. I'm looking to this meeting as it's the most important thing happening in anybody's life uh, is happening right here, right now, this morning. That's, that's how I feel about this. And, and maybe for you, it's, you know, the thing that happens right before the saints kick off. And, you know, I'm just here. I'm glad that LSU won. We could just, you know, really just round out the weekend and feel good about a lot of things if the saints can pull that off. And, and we'll just have a happy weekend. But, but here's the reality, that if you've got a hidden area of sin that's in your life, all this weekend did for you was distract you and give you a fake sense of healing and closure. Because you know that thing's going to surface and it's going to remind you and it's going to affect you all over again later tonight, tomorrow. And so what we have interesting in this passage is an opportunity to move on. You have an opportunity today to move on from wherever that issue is, however overwhelming some failure has been in your life, no matter how significant something you're trapped in right now and hidden, you have an opportunity to move on. And so I want to pray for us this morning as we open up the word together. Lord, Lord, this, this meeting for us, every week that we gather, it's the, it should be and it is the most disruptive thing in our lives. Because God, you bring your word to be planted in our souls so that we can be transformed, we can be changed, we can have something new that we didn't have just moments before. We can experience a reality that was absent in our lives. So God, be disruptive this morning. God, help us. You know what's in our past and you know what's hidden in our lives now. And Lord, don't let us escape 
this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Exodus chapter 15. Last week we were singing this song with the guys who had just come through the Red Sea and what an experience they had, so much so that they were ready to sing about it, right? So let's capture the mood and then we'll go into our new passage. Verse 11, the song sings, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. Look on verse 18. The Lord will reign forever and ever. This is some good, confident, awesome realities being sung about. Verse 19. For when the horses of Pharaoh went with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out with her with tambourines and dancing, and Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. No one even change gears here. Verse 22, then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was, it was named Marah, which means bitterness. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes... I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord, your healer. Then they came to Elam, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. Now, I'm going to go back to Mara in just a second, but I just want to introduce you to these people because these people are related to us, and I think you're going to see the family resemblance really, really quickly. All right, so we, we meet them at Mara, and then we keep reading here. And just a couple of passages to, to give us what's on. Do I have my map up here yet? What's on the verge of our lives, right? I'm, I don't know who created these numbers here, but it was a helpful map. So we're at, we're at point number four here at Mara, right? And if we read ahead, we're going to see a couple of other points along the roadway here of their leaving Egypt, going to meet God at Sinai, and eventually going on in the promised land. But right ahead of this, right beyond this verse here, we just finished Mara. Now look at verse six, chapter 16, verse 1. They set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole Congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. Seen any family resemblance yet? And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. 
For you've brought us into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. And then we scoot one chapter ahead, Exodus chapter 17. We're a little bit farther down the map, but not too far. Chapter 17, verse 1, all the congregation of the people. At least they've got unity going on in this group, huh? All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Right, you have an interesting time frame here, right? Sometimes we read the Bible, we have no idea how close is this event to that one? How much time is in between these things? Well, this one kind of clues us in a little bit. So you've got this episode of this singing and awesome God and this song gets written and everybody's celebrating and they got tambourines and all the women are dancing because they're overwhelmed with how good God is. And then three whole days go by. If you're not careful, you didn't catch that part, right? It sounded like it was a really, really long time. Three days until we get to Mara. And there's a setback. And then we go a little farther into the story. And we end up, I think I call this, you know, 45 days to forgetfulness. These were titles, right? This is an episode. You know, the episode of the Red Sea episode. And then there was one in three days to desperation. And then 45 days. And it really wasn't even 45 days. More like 35 days. Right? So... It was at five weeks to forgetfulness. In five weeks, they've confronted thirst and then hunger, and then confront thirst again shortly after that. And in that moment, they're concluding that we need to panic. We are freaked out. And, and these guys, can you imagine, you know, this experience for us? You know, this, this is not a people who had a, you know, they, did, they didn't know what a fast, fast food was. There was no drive-up windows. They had no technology. And all it takes is this amount of time to become impatient that God isn't doing something fast enough for them. Now, honestly, you read these stories. How many of us were expecting more from these people at this point? You expecting a little better response? We're, at least I am kind of blown away by the shallow, fickled, impatient response. I mean, back up just a little bit. They've been in Egypt. God puts on this incredible display of power. There's 10 plagues, one after another. There's revelation being given to Moses that this is being done by the hand of God to confront Pharaoh. Pharaoh cries uncle, lets them go. Nobody thought that would ever happen. They travel into the wilderness a little ways. Pharaoh comes back with force, corners them in the Red Sea. God does another miracle. You know, this is not like, oh, yeah, that's, a, that's the third or fourth time I've ever seen water stand straight up in the air. And we walk through on dry land. That's like, this is mind-blowing stuff. I think that would create some memories in your life, wouldn't it? And then, strangely, you get to pass through, and then your enemies get to get destroyed, and their bodies float up on the shore in the pronouncement that you're never going to see these guys again. And then you go three whole days into the wilderness, and you flip out, and you accuse the leader, and you accuse God that this is going to be a bad setting with a bad situation and a bad outcome. 
right? I'm going to get some help today from Mr. Spurgeon, pastor from England in the 1800s. <clears throat> Charles says, but it's evident from their conduct that they were not altogether a new people. They had brought a great deal of evil out of Egypt with them. When they were tried and tested, it was found that the old stuff was still in them. They murmured just as they had often done before when in the land of Egypt. He says, we too <clears throat> have entered quite a new state. Some of you perhaps have lately become new creatures in Christ Jesus. Between you and your old sin, there's, there rolls a deep, impassable sea, right? That's what the Red Sea, God parts this, baptizes them through that. They come out of that Red Sea rescued from their past. You will never go back to them again, praise God. Ah, but do not begin to flatter yourselves that you may have left behind you all your old selves, it remains still, even in the regenerate, the old lusts of the flesh. You must not marvel if, when you are tried and proved, you find that you are like these Israelites at Marah. Right? I know it's very tempting, and I've done this a gazillion times, so if you've done it today or recently, you're, I'm with you. I, I read the story of these guys, and again, I, you know, I, reading it's a little quicker than living it, isn't it? So I'm reading their story, amazing God, amazing God, amazing God, amazing God. First opportunity to doubt, yes, we'll take some doubt. We'll, we'll, we're in. We're buying into that. And I, I just, you know, I don't know if I want to kick them, yell at them, or admit that I'm just like them. Charles Spurgeon goes on and says, rest assured that they were no worse than we are. They are an example to us of what our heart is, and whatever we see in them, we have but to watch a little, and we shall see it all in ourselves. It was not Jewish nature that God proved in the wilderness, so much as human nature at its very best state. Assuredly, the tendency of human nature is to murmur. I'm going to say it's, it's, and murmuring, by the way, is just the sound you make when something else is going on on the inside of you, right? I'm not so concerned with, hey, hey, watch your mouth. Uh, it's more your heart, right? We murmur because something preceded the murmuring. We believed something. We felt a certain way. We, we were analyzing the situation and concluding some things. Therefore, we said something, and that's, that's what they experienced here. But there's, there's something happening here that's being illustrated, and I think it's also pointing to a reality inside of our own lives. And I want to call it being aware or beware of thirst and hunger. Beware. And I'm going to read this paragraph to you. I think I put this in your outline. There are some serious forces that live inside of us that will push, prod, provoke, and panic us in some powerful ways. We are convinced of our need. We are tethered on a short leash to certain needs and issues in our lives, and these things can invoke some really poor or desperate responses from us. They had seen and tasted God's power in his triumph, his miraculous intervention and provision, his steadfast love, they sang about it, the fact that they were a redeemed people, they sang about it, yet 
They lack faith and obedience and hope in their circumstance at Mara. There's something happening at Mara that has so much power in their life that all this other evidence, all this amazement with God, all of the realities that God has intervened, all the promise and hope that God has given to them by revealing himself to them meets something inside of them at Mara that causes them to desperately doubt that God will be good to them. Beware of thirst and hunger, right? They went three days in the wilderness without finding water. So that created a condition in them, and it was a condition of panic. They were panicking at this moment because in their life, that thirst represents, I need something that I don't have. And if I don't get it, I'm going to die. That, okay, that's, that's what thirst at that level begins to communicate to you, right? So and there's not a person in here who has any idea what that thirst feels like physically. Right? But you've got other issues in your life, right? Just get, kind of get in touch with those for a moment. Because, you know, we've got so much access to water, we don't experience these kind of problems in this category. But you've got other things in your life that feel that way, Right? I've got something desperately in need inside of me. It's, it's, I've reached the point of desperation in it. Three days for physical water, three years for something else. I don't know where the, the tipping point is for us. But I'm at a point where if this need doesn't get met, I am going to die. And I don't see any means for it to get met. And worse than that, I showed up thinking that was going to meet my need. And it was bitter and I couldn't make use of it. Right, that's their moment here. Charles Spurgeon says this, very hopeful words or helpful words. He says, I hope that nobody here thinks that these Israelites experienced a small trial. We're not accustomed to traveling in the desert, but those who are tell us that thirst in the wilderness is something awful to endure. For all that great host to go three days without water must have been a very trying experience. You would not like to try that even in this country, but what must it be to go three days in the wilderness beneath a burning sky without a drop of water to drink? Then came the bitter disappointment at Mara. Probably the people knew that there were water springs ahead, so they hurried up to the place to drink, but when they stopped or stooped to taste the waters, they found that they were bitter. They could not drink of them, and there they stood in their desperation with the long thirst parching their throats and bitter disappointment adding to their agony. And they murmured against Moses saying, what shall we drink? I say not this to excuse them, but lest you should think that they had only a small trial to bear. I read this pretty quick and I find fault with them pretty quickly and pretty easily. But at some point, you're, you're into your wilderness, whatever your wilderness is, and you're far enough in to where you're starting to panic. And you're losing any sense of hope. And, and, and interesting descriptions here. I don't know what your circumstance needs to be here. Whatever your Mara event is here, something awful to endure. Apply that wherever you need to apply it right now. Something in your life awful to endure. A very trying experience and you're, you're into this thing far enough and you begin to somehow look up and there's this Mara location. There's this thing coming, some scout, somebody's gone ahead, somebody brought you word. 
that up ahead, there's some relief here. And so you, you kind of gain some fresh legs and you get a little bit excited about your marriage or about your finances. Something looks like it's going gonna, it's gonna to work out here and you move toward it quickly. You've pulled it together for that moment and you get to that thing and you touch that thing and it reaches back and touches your life and it's bitter and it cannot rescue you and it cannot meet your need. Now, you're in a whole nother league of desperation, aren't you? Listen, you know, I mean, I know stories in, you know, through the years, couples that wanted to adopt, who looked like it was going to work out, got close to that thing, and, and, and then all of a sudden it didn't work out. It blew up, and their, their hopes were dashed, and it was more bitter in that moment than it was when they first started to move toward it. And, and you've got your categories of experience where that's what life has felt like. Not sure what you do in that moment because uh, what they did in that moment was, was accelerate their fear and their fear turned into words and their words were very angry and their words found a target, right? And his name was Moses. Right? I don't know who your Moses is here, but A.W. Pink says something interesting about this passage. He says, they speak as if they had to do with Moses only. And is it not frequently so with us? When we reach Mara, do we not charge some fellow creature with being responsible for our hard lot, some friend in whom we trusted, some counselor whose advice we respected, some arm of the flesh on which we leaned has failed us, and we blame them because of the bitter waters. This this could preach all by itself, but just think for a moment and, and, and think carefully. Just notice and learn the human nature that's in this passage. This, these passages here, you know, the, these are transition passages. We're not to Sinai yet. We're in this little space here going from Egypt to Sinai. But there's so much in these passages. There's so much to learn about being a human being in these passages. So much that gets revealed about us in this place. And I don't know too many people who when they, when they drink bitter waters of life, they don't at some point look around to figure out who they need to blame for this. And somebody's on that list, right? Beware the people closest to you. They get to volunteer the fastest. Right? So your parents get on the list pretty early in life. At some point, you are totally screwed up because of your parents. I promise you. I mean, it just that's, that's what parents do to people. We have books that we study to figure out how to screw you up as much as possible. And some of us are better at it than others, we can say proudly. But, you know, at some point, something's not going to go right for you. Something's not going to be provided for you a certain way. You're going to hit some issue. Something didn't get worked out earlier on. And, and, and you get, and life is bitter, right? You just, you just drank some life and it didn't do for you. It backfired in your face and it hurt you. And you want to blame your parents. Or you want to blame your spouse. Or maybe you get later and you want to blame your kids. But there's somebody, there's a Moses in your life somewhere. You want to blame leaders in your life. You want to blame the church. You want to blame pastors. Somebody should have worked the bitterness out. You shouldn't have been bitter when I got to this location. Somebody's to blame for that. This, this is not just a... Old Testament, this, this story about people 
coming undone. People arriving at, a, at an address, right? Welcome to Mara. And it's not what I thought it was going to be. I'm disillusioned. It tastes bitter. It's difficult. I don't know how to handle it. It doesn't look like there's a way out. This, this travels, uh, you know, this little dotted line. Welcome to that experience all along the dotted line. Right? The dotted line is them wandering in the wilderness. Eventually, they're going to head into the promised land all along the way. They're going to have event after event after event like this. And then you can just go ahead and go right into the New Testament and find out that people still have these experiences. I know a lot of us, you know, we're the upgrade version, right, of these people in the wilderness, right? Because, I mean, we have the Holy Spirit. You should consider yourself an upgrade, actually. But I read the New Testament, and I find some of these Israelites came along for the ride. <laughs> New Testament believers struggling. Now, I don't know what happened to John Mark. You know, we've studied this in the book of Acts. Joins Paul in ministry, gets down the road, stepping out in ministry, and withdraws and, and created a major controversy that divided two of the most renowned people in the New Testament. John Mark, what happened? I don't know. He got to some address like Amara, and it was a little bitter, and he didn't want any part of it, and he backed off. People who walk with Paul, people who were discipled by the apostle Paul, Paul would turn around and say, Demas has left me, having loved this present world. He has abandoned the mission. I don't know if he's abandoned his faith. I don't know. But he got to some point where whatever this is for the kingdom of God, whatever this is for God's people, if i got to live in that, that tastes bitter to me, and I don't want to be a part of it anymore. And when you read the New Testament, do you, do you know how much off-road behavior is being addressed in the New Testament? As a matter of fact, you get most of the New Testament out of the writer starting with the occasion of a problem and explaining how to think differently, explaining how to believe differently, explaining, no, don't, don't respond that way in suffering. If people speak to you this way, don't speak back to them that way. Well, why are you telling these people that? Because that's what they were doing. They got to a moment where they were treated evil, life was bitter, and they were responding wrong. So listen, this never goes away. Throughout our pilgrimage on this earth, <clears throat> people are going to be what I'd call mired at Mara. Look under that heading, a people mired at Mara. All right, here's the reality. Here's who we are. A people chosen by God who are characterized by their frequent bouts with unbelief and idolatry. They're being called together to live as God's covenant community where God's presence dwells uniquely upon the earth in their midst. At Sinai, God's going to install a system of worship and sacrifice to address this great discrepancy between sinful, fallen people who are called into a relationship with a holy, perfect God. But note something. Even at Sinai, when that gets installed, note something all along the way of their storyline. Doubt, idolatry, and destructive sin choices are not uncommon issues among God's people. Is anybody shocked by that? Doubt, idolatry, and destructive sin choices are not uncommon issues among God's people. Whether we are 45 days into the journey, or we're 450 years later, and we're following the story of King David. 
facing human failure is interwoven in the story of God's chosen people. God has chosen a people who can be prone to be freaked out, fragile, fearful, and foolish. These descriptive words get installed early. So the story of God's people is going to deal with human failure, right? If you just follow the map here, right, from this location, if you follow the storyline and you're, here we are at Mara, well, if you pick your binoculars up and you look a little farther into the wilderness of sin, they're going to do it again. They're going to become fragile and they're going to fail and their faith is going to collapse. And if you pick your binoculars up in the wilderness of sin and you look ahead a little bit to scene number seven at Rephidim, they're going to do it again. They're going to have an opportunity to trust God. Instead, they're going to freak out and their faith is going to collapse again. And if you pick your binoculars up there and look a little bit ahead, you're going to go to Mount Sinai and they're going to freak out in the worst of ways. Because not only are they going to doubt God, they're going to build another God to lead them. This is God's people. These are the people that God has chosen for his own. And this is part of the storyline. And it's still part of the storyline. It's part of the storyline here with us today. Ray Ortland has an interesting way of putting this in his book, The Gospel. He says, The gospel is not the story of Christ loving a pure bride who loves him. It's the story of his love for a whore who thinks he has nothing to offer and keeps giving herself to others. That's painful for me to even read. Not because the word whore is in it because I know there's too much of me that steps into Mara moments and I don't think God's got something for me right there. I stop believing that. I panic. I get provoked by a need that I don't know how it can be met. It will take some activity of God that I can't script for him He's going to have to do something that's smarter than me. Can you imagine? And in that moment, I freak out. And I lack faith. And I accuse God and I yell at somebody. I'm, I'm, I'm in this story here. And I'm, and I'm in a church. And I'm among a, a group of people. And this is a real challenging thing. Because we're, we're a bunch of people who believe some things, right? We've got some convictions about some things. We, we, we've learned about this God. He's holy, and he's worthy, and he's majestic, and he calls us to live a certain way. And so we, we gain respect for that, at least in our heads. And then we gain categories where we respect that because we've got those categories down in our own lives. And then people come to their moment at Mara around us and, and, and we treat them in such a way that they don't feel like they have any permission to fail. I, I hope what I do today is stomp on, stomp on. And I know I have to stomp on me a little bit in this. Uh, what I would call unsympathetic meanness in the body of Christ. 
This is, and it'll only come at you this way. You can look for it next time it does come at you. Unsympathetic meanness, right? You came to your moment of Mara, and whatever it is you were hoping for, it didn't go that way. And it puts you in a desperate spot. There's a thirst and a hunger inside of you. You're desperate right now. You thought that was going to fix you, and it didn't. And you're angry, and you're bitter, and you're disillusioned, and you're freaking out. And then somebody comes along, because let's face it, in these moments, we, we do some stupid things in these moments. We do things that later on we regret quite a bit. We fail, and we make choices that don't have faith in them. And then somebody else stands alongside of you and is unsympathetic and mean in that moment. Listen, part of the reason why I'm preaching this message is is out of a headline. That was in the newspaper, if you still read the newspaper. Last Sunday, it was front page of a Sunday newspaper. Let me tell you how this, this awkwardness gets created, right? I'm going to stand in this pulpit, and anybody who stands in a pulpit, anybody who's preached historically in the body of Christ, anybody who's spoken in history to the people of God ought to sound a certain way about certain things. We are called to be a people who have convictions. There's a God out there who's revealed some things. So when the God who stands up and says, Thou shalt not commit adultery... I don't think anybody in the body of Christ is invited to be casual about that comment. The God of the universe has made known what's right in that category, what we ought to believe in that category. And so I ought to have some convictions about that. Right? I shouldn't be what this world feels like in categories where God has made himself clear. I shouldn't be walking around going, well, you know, times have changed and you know, if that's how you feel, and you know, I just got to tolerate where you are, and I can't impose my beliefs on you. I, I don't know where that kind of screwy idea comes from. So if, if you start down a pathway that leads to the violation of, of God's revelation, if you start down that path, adultery, whatever, you start down a path of, of lust, Here's what you will have heard from me if you're in a men's meeting, if you've heard me preach from the pulpit, if you heard me in a counseling session. So there's, I own plenty of uh, fill in the atmosphere here with a charged sense of you start down a road that I believe biblically will lead you to violate what God has said is good. And I, I'm, I'm going to dance, scream, sing, shoot things at you, make you aware of consequences, inform you of what could happen. I mean, there's a lot of noise that's going to go off because I'm going to want you to be aware of whatever is true and helpful and biblical to help you say no to that thing that's after you in that moment. I want you to say no to that. And if you're in Christ, you want others to say no to that. So the language that we speak to each other is, no, don't do that. No, it's not good. The consequences are horrible. You start down that road, it'll destroy this in your life. It'll destroy this in your life. Then this in your life. And that's all true. Then what happens when the person listening to that ventures into Mara, they're desperately thirsty for something, and they do what they never should have done in that moment. They never should have done this. And then they do it. What do you do then? 
it, it grieves me. I, I have wept for this man. Front page headlines last week. A local seminary professor and pastor in a church here in New Orleans it was revealed that his name, his email address was on the Ashley Madison website. That he had engaged and been involved with activities associated with that website. And I'm guessing most of you have heard about that website. So it's an adultery website. It's a website that invites people to pursue adulterous relationships. This man who was a seminary professor and a pastor in New Orleans had engaged that website to pursue adultery. And when that got revealed, that man had no sense of redemptive hope inside of him, and he took his own life. He's a well-loved man. People in his church, I mean, we've got guys here who are students that, that had him as a professor. And I, I, all the people that have spoken about him just saw such quality and character and love and care in this man's life. And he, his wife is without a husband. His children are without a father. So listen, I, I'm, I am grieved by a pathway that, that took him down this road into a pattern of sin that controlled and dominated his life to the point where he would make the decisions that he made. I am, I'm grieved by that. If I had met that man along the way, I would have screamed, yelled, kicked, put my hands on him, prayed, begged, made him aware of consequences. I would have done anything in my power to keep him from going down that road. I'm also grieved by somebody could get into a pattern of sin, get into a place of sin, and, and, and when it gets revealed, they have no hope for redemption. None. And you understand this is, this is quite a dilemma to have? I, I don't know if you realize the dilemma that this is because it, you don't get to stand behind this pulpit and figure out how to make sure both of these things stay alive at the same time. But I will say this, you're listening to preaching every week, and your responsibility when you turn to the person in the seat next to you, you or you counsel somebody in your covenant group, is to make sure both of these things stay alive. That's not just my job. That's your job too. And so when we stand in the pulpit and we talk about divorce the way we do, and we try to tell people, don't do it, how it's not characteristic of the kind of love that God has for us, and don't, 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 don't. Now, in this room, this room's got lots of divorced people in it. Uh, are, are you okay with that? Can you, can you live in a setting that has convictions in one category, but yet you came to Mara, and at Mara, your thirst was so great that you panicked and freaked out and you made a decision at some point in your life to get a divorce. What do you do now? 
or you're in this room and, and your visit to Mara was, was an unexpected, unplanned pregnancy, or you were the boyfriend of an unexpected, unplanned pregnancy, and in that moment of desperation when we've been three days into the wilderness and we have no idea how this works out and we have no way to survive this event, you made a decision that ended a life in abortion. And now you're amongst God's people and you hear us talk about abortion. Do you, do you have a hope of redemption inside of you or is it just this past failure that whenever those words get used, all you are in touch with is your failure and the guilt. Listen, this is all over the place in our lives. It's all over the place. Right? I, I know this. I'm standing speaking at a men's meeting, or any of the guys are doing this, and, and, and I want to I exhort the fathers in our midst. I want to talk about what kind of father to be. I want to talk about the fact that being a father has reward and it has consequences. I want to I motivate the guy who's got kids at his feet in his house to do whatever he's got to do to keep his priorities right, to spend his energy right, to devote himself and get around his kids and relate to them and build into their lives and disciple them and everything that I can think to help them. But in that same meeting, two seats over, is the 55-year-old man who didn't do half of my list. And his relationship with his kids are a mess, and his kids are a mess. And every word that I use to admonish the 30-year-old with a 4-year-old in his house is crushing that guy because he feels condemned by it. Because he didn't do that. And now it's too late. This, this, this is a hard thing to pull off, isn't it? Because it's a mistake to say, well, then let's, let's, let's not have any convictions. Let's not stand for something. Let's not act as though this is the right way to do something and this is the wrong way. We, we can't do that. But yet, God's people, God's pastors, whoever, need to get informed that when we reach Mara, some people are going to freak out. And their faith is going to fail. And they need to pick themselves up in the redemption of God and go on with God's people. They need to be with them at Rephidim when it happens again. They're going to need to be together at Sinai. Listen, too many people, this, for, for many, many people who have significant failures in their life, this becomes an acidic environment for them. Because they feel like they're more in touch with their failures than they are with God's redemption. Wait, you just sang this song. You have led us in your steadfast love, the people whom you have redeemed. You redeemed us. You bought us. You love us with an undying, steadfast love. So that when you freak out at Mara and you got no faith, even after all that God has done and you overlook all that and you, and you are driven by thirst and hunger and you do what you never should have done, there is still a God whose love is steadfast and who is redemptive in this moment. Oh, that that man could have heard that more clearly. He preached it, but he couldn't hear it in that moment. I don't even know what time it is here. My watch is broken. 
It's my grandfather's watch, I believe. I found it in a box. I wound it up, and it worked. Turn to Psalm 32, and I just want to give you a quick glimpse at something here. Because whether you're 45 days into this journey as being the people of God, or you're 450 years later, which is where we find ourselves in Psalm 32. People come to these points at Mara where they are driven by desperation and they make destructive decisions in their lives. And I don't know if anybody is a poster child for this problem worse than King David. King David, the man who writes giant pieces of scripture for us, the man who was used in incredible redemptive ways by God, has perhaps the worst story in all the Bible in his life. He's going to come to a point where the desperation, the thirst of lust in his life desperately drives him to make a decision one day to go after that woman that he can see from his balcony and bring her to himself to have an affair with her, to commit adultery with her, she becomes pregnant. And rather than at that point do what he needed to do to address this issue, he's going to take a step and he's going to make it worse, far worse. He's going to arrange for this woman's husband to be murdered. He is a corrupt leader. He is the king of the nation, so he's got the power to do that. What drove that man to keep that quiet? Why not just come out and say, I am so sorry. I did the worst of things. I had an affair with your wife. I don't know. I don't know what what empowers people in that moment. Shame? I can't do that. I'm I'm the king of a nation. If my wife knew, if my family knew what I did, I I can't do that. So people in that moment do something worse than that. That poor past that professor did was worse than confessing. What David did was worse than confessing. David covered it up. He hid it. That's why I say, are you here this morning with something hidden in your life? It's probably a good year before David's issue comes to light. He managed, he, he may have thought he got away with it. But in the back of his heart, this nagging reality is, I'm an adulterer and I'm a murderer. And he can't tell anybody and he can't deal with it and he can't move on from it. So life is just bitter at Mara for him. And there is no moving on. Until God in his mercy discloses his shame and sends a prophet to him. Listen, this is, this is where you may not like sometimes that God has sent somebody to you to bring something into the light. But in the mercy of God, that thing staying in the dark is killing you. And those around you as well. And, and this, is, this is David's psalm on the other side of that issue, Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, 
whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Oh, the relief. Do some of you guys know the relief of stop deceiving people? Can you remember? Maybe that's last week or maybe it's 10 years ago. Can you remember the joy of stopping living a lie and having to manage a lie and make sure you said stuff that was consistent with what you thought you said before? Oh, the day where you just come clean and it's all honest and exposed and you don't have to do that anymore. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. Through my groaning all day long, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. And listen to this. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, now he turns his experience into an exhortation for everybody else. Let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Verse 10. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Now that steadfast love is such a giant word in Scripture. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. This, this guy, as far as I'm concerned, think for a second. This, this guy, David,'s got the worst resume of maybe anybody in the Old Testament. Entrusted with power, he abused it. Knowing God at a level that he did, and he blew that off, set it aside. All that God had done, do you know the victories that God had brought into this man's life, the power that had been invested in this man's life, the success that he experienced at the hands of God? Just like the Israelites? Ten plagues in a row, rescue out of the Red Sea, provision for you miraculously, but the first time you hit a bump where your appetite is too great and it's got to get met right now, you freak out at Mara, and that's what David did. But, but here's the miraculous thing here. If I, bring, if I hadn't given you all that background about King David and I just mentioned King David... That's not the first thing you would have remembered, was it? I could be reading from the Psalms. I could be reading from the things he taught us. We don't remember David as a man of dishonor. Even though there was some severe dishonor in his background. Look what redemption did in his life. It gave him a new name. Listen, it's no small task. I wrote this in your outline. It's no small task to balance these 
varied and important elements in the kingdom of God. There are commands in the Bible. There are convictions we should all have and feel strongly about. There are covenant commitments, right? So much so that there's this thing called church discipline that if you sin and refuse to repent that the the Bible calls on the church to step into your life and have something to say about that. You gotta hold that in your hands. There's accountability in the Bible, But right alongside with that, there is wandering and there is weakness in the Bible. There is fleshly failure in the Bible. There's a need for forgiveness in the Bible. There's a need for restoration of God's people in the Bible. There's a need for humility in those who sin and in those who handle those who sin. There's a need for patience among the people of God. Ray Ortland says this in his book, The Gospel. He says, the family of God is where people should find lots of gospel, lots of safety, and lots of time. In other words, the people in our churches need multiple exposures to the happy news of the gospel from one end of the Bible to the other. The safety of non-accusing sympathy so that they can admit their problems honestly. And enough time to rethink their lives at a deep level because people are complex and changing is not easy. Here's how I want us to close this morning. There is this place on this pathway of the people of God who are being led by God called Mara. And there are people in this room right now that are on their way to Mara. You're on your way there. You feel the pressing desperation of being thirsty for days or for however long your situation's been going on. You're running towards something that you think and hope will rescue you perhaps. And, And when you get there, you may find a bitter experience. And then there are some people who have already been tomorrow. You are living in the, the bitterness of this event, this place in your life, and, and, and you need to move on. You need to move on from your divorce. You need to move on from your abortion. You need to move on from your parenting. You need to move on. But David moved on. Didn't ignore, wasn't unaffected. So that's not what that means. But he did get to move on. He did get to a place where his life contained rejoicing and an ability to live in redemption. But had he kept his sin hidden, he said, I acknowledge my sin and I did not cover it. If you are keeping your sin hidden, if you cannot own it in the face of God and, and, and then be led to God by God to own it however you need to own it to others, 
you won't get to the end of Psalm 32. You're going to live in that misery, that anguish, the bitterness of that situation. You just keep living in it. David lived in it for a year before finally he owned it and he was able to move on. Listen, listen, I, I prayed for our meeting here today because I know there are people in this room. You either have got something terrible in your past it's too defining about you. It's more defining about you than redemption is. And this morning, God wants to outweigh that thing with what he's done. And there are some here this morning <clears throat> that you have, you have hidden sin in your life. And you won't bring it to light, not because you don't think it's wrong, but you won't bring it to life because you don't believe in life once this gets out in the open. You don't believe people will care for you. You don't believe your spouse will still love you. You don't believe God's purpose will continue. You believe if you bring this thing into the light, <clears throat> you just believe the worst of things are about to happen if you do that. How long do you think you can live there thinking that way? If you're a Christian, there's something in you that screams at you, live in the light, live in the light, live in the light. And that under-eroding deception that's inside of you and your practice by keeping this thing in the dark, it, it's killing you. You know it, it is killing you. And you, you need to have the courage this morning to believe in a redeeming God. And that's dangerous, I know. And, and you might not know, okay, well, Keith, what do I do? Here, here step number one. <clears throat> is you need to confess it to God. You need to get in agreement with God about it. You need to feel about it the way that God feels about it. And if God feels like I said, don't do that, confess it to me, that doesn't mean God stopped being redemptive as he's correcting you. He's trying to bring you into redemption so that you'll abandon that thing and know it was never supposed to be what you did, but you did. And I confess that to God. And you may need to confess that to others. It may need to come into the light. Psalm 32, verse 8 says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Don't be like the horse or the mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle or will not stay near you. Right? God will lead you. First thing you've got to do this morning, though, is be honest with God and be open to do whatever he says to do with that thing. Because he's redemptive. God is redemptive. The story goes on, and you go on with the people of God, and you go on with people in your life who may need to wrestle through forgiveness and may need to heal something in your relationship. But that's what God does with us, doesn't he? Right? Can, we, can we believe that for ourselves? That the God who is postured to look at us at Mara and say, you know what, I, I'm God, I know you're going to do this. I know the wilderness of sin, you're going to turn around and say exactly the same stuff. Oh, you applaud me now, but you're going to betray me again. And then we'll get to Rephidim, you're going to do the same thing again. And we're going to get to Sinai, and you're going to build a substitute God for me. And yet they're still God's people, and he is faithful to them, and he leads them and stays with them. Listen, spouses, you may get something confessed to you after this service that you may have to figure out how much like God you want to be. 
because it may be very hard for you to hear what somebody needs to say to you. I'm not saying this is easy. This is not easy stuff. But it's healing stuff. It's in the world of redemption. It's in the reality that we are a people who are fragile, that we fail, and that we're to stick together and be God's people. And so you get in, you get in a pickle here, and you, you know, I don't know how to handle this, and you need some counsel and advice, and we want, we want to help you with this. But God doesn't want anybody living in darkness anymore, okay? Let's have some faith in a God who redeems. Let's, let's stand up together. Lord, I don't know which is a Saturday, worse day. It's the, the day that a man wanders down a road, makes choices down a road that brings destruction into his marriage, into his life. Lord, something was missing in those moments. But Lord, how sad a day that when your people fall, that we don't have a view of you that offers us any hope in that moment. What did we lose along the way about you? It made us think there's no way out of this. There's no healing this. There's no fixing this. There's, there's no hope for the future. God, I thank you for a man named David whose life had a life after he made these reckless decisions. God, I thank you for a people, a nation, that continued to belong to you, though it doubted and had unbelief over and over and over again. It built idols and it went wayward and it found you unattractive. God, this morning, Lord, I pray for those who are needing to move on from the bitterness of where they've been. God, I pray for a view of you that offers a loud, screaming reality of redemption and steadfast love surrounding them. Surrounding them. Where there's not a gap in it, there's not a hole somewhere that something else can slip through. Your steadfast love is immovable. And so, Lord, that'll be true when they bring their sin into the light. Lord, that'll be true when they confess when they agree with you and they share with others where they've been and what they've done, your steadfast love, Lord, will still be your steadfast love. Your redemptive purpose will still be happening. There will still be a promised land that we are headed to. God, let grace Open our hearts, God. Let, let us be a people, Lord, somehow who have some strong convictions in this place 
and at the same time, we're not some unsympathetic, mean-spirited bunch of people to be around. That we don't forget what it was like when life was really bitter for me. And I panicked. And I made decisions that I regret. Lord, would you fill us with humility and compassion and patience and time and safety and those words. God, let that characterize who we are. Let people who have drank bitterness find sweetness among your people. Sin has torn down, left me broken. I was bound by chains I could not see. Sin destroys lives, blinded my eyes to the chasm separating me. The veil was torn down. Your body broken upon the cross, sin's power destroyed. You redeem lives, open my eyes to your great love for me. You are greater than all my sin. Salvation is found within me. This death is conquered, no longer hopeless. From the grave, you rose in victory. This is our hope. You bring freedom, no condemnation. You are. 
sing you're greater. You are greater than all my sin. Your love is stronger to rescue from where I've been. You're my only hope, my Savior, my defense. You are greater. You're my only hope. You're my only hope, my Savior, my defense. You are greater. Sing one more time. You're my only hope. You're my only hope, my Savior, my defense. You are our Savior, our defense, Lord, would you be near to us this week? Lord, convince us of your goodness. Lord, convince us, like your word says, that you are slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Lord, would we experience your mercy and your forgiveness this week? Help us to trust you, God, we pray. In your name, amen. Amen.